Hey, what's up, y'all? Alan Kenny, host of Blatant Homers and Podcast here. Uh, it is March 31st. All of the uh, Sweet 16 Elite Eight games have finally wrapped up in the NCAA tournament. We've got a Final Four set. We're going to invite uh, Matt Zemek of CBB uh, today on uh, to talk a little bit about uh, what we saw over the weekend and uh, what we should be looking forward to next weekend. So let's go ahead and welcome him on. Matt, how you doing, man? Doing fantastic. What a great Elite Eight. Uh, you know what, Matt? It really was a uh, just. I mean, it was one great game after another. Um, you know, and it was kind of really made up for in, in a lot of ways what was kind of a snoozer. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, that that opening weekend there, the round sixty four and thirty two. These last these last uh, four days have been just awesome. They certainly have it, and, and so you know, I always like to talk about NCAA tournament history, find some parallels. So. This Elite Eight and the 2005 Elite Eight, these are the two best Elite Eights, certainly in the 21st century. I haven't really looked at 1980s-era Elite Eights, but certainly in the 21st century, those are the two that come right to the surface. Remind me again, what was 2005? Okay, so in 2005, you had three overtime games, and you had a double overtime game, and the worst, quote-unquote, worst of the... Wisconsin regional final, and this was when Bo Ryan's Wisconsin offense, you know, was in the 19th century. But but North Carolina played an 88-82 game against Bo in the uh, East regional final, and that was the worst of the four games because you had OT games in the other three. You had Louisville coming from 20 points down to beat Kevin Pitsnoggle in West Virginia in Albuquerque. Then you had Illinois down 15 with four minutes left and eight with one minute left. Mm-hmm knocking off Lute Olson in Arizona in Chicago in the Rosemont Horizon. And then you had Michigan State beating Kentucky in double overtime. You had Kalena Azabuki of Kentucky forgetting about the clock, uh, I believe, at the end of the first overtime, uh, either the first overtime or regulation, one of the two. And at the end of the other one, you had Patrick Sparks three, which hit like three parts of the rim, dropped through they had a five-minute replay review to see if his toe was behind mm-hmm. the line it was so that game just careened into a second overtime in austin but michigan state was able to uh knock out tubby smith and also hit one of his his star players ray john rondo and chuck hayes uh in that 2005 austin final so that was a, an extraordinary weekend and uh belongs on the same par with what we saw uh here in 2019 yeah and so I'm wondering, looking at this, uh, you know, kind of this cavalcade of, you know, really great games, did you have any major kind of takeaways or did you see any kind of themes that emerged uh, in your mind? Well, you know, I think that the, the, the overarching storyline is that defenses seem to get a bigger foothold in the NCAA tournament. And I'll use Auburn, Kentucky as my example, you know, Auburn 2019 reminds me a lot of two, of South Carolina in 2017. First off, first Final Four for both schools. Second, they were disappointing in the regular season uh, and then, you know, turn, turned it on late, you know, became a very different team. You know, Auburn, without Chuma Okiki, I thought Auburn was dead in the water because Auburn lost by, by 27 to Kentucky the last time these teams met on February 23rd. So, you know, Auburn was crushed with Okiki, and then you you don't even have them 
in the lineup against Kentucky's frontline size, uh, it just it just seemed like a very very hard game for Auburn to to win. And when Kentucky went up 17-7, you know, I thought, all right, you know, I'm getting ready to Billy Packer this game. It's over. Mm. Uh, but uh, Auburn was able to rally, and it rallied with its defense. You know, Kentucky's, and we 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 did say this that Kentucky three point shooting was a problem. You know, Tyler Hero being the exception, but Hero was not on point in this game. He didn't get free, and on the on the very rare occasions when he got free, you know, he didn't make a shot. So that immediately limited Kentucky's offense. And, you know, on a larger level, we, we never saw either Kentucky or Duke really bust through and become a fully liberated, free-flowing team. You know, so those two offenses were kept consistently under wraps uh, in, in three consecutive games. Kentucky and Duke were never really able to flex their muscles for more than like a five or six minute stretch of gameplay. And when they did, their opponents were able to fight back. Michigan State did. You know, Duke had a 12-0 run. Michigan State answered with a 13-0 run in this game. And Kentucky got an 11-point lead against Houston, had that 10-point lead early against Auburn and was involved in a close game right down to the final minute. So Kentucky and Duke really went through these very similar three-game progressions in which, you know, you're conditioned to think that, okay, they're winning these close games. Surely they're eventually going to run away. Surely the the very best iteration of these teams is going to show up. But Auburn against Kentucky, Michigan State against Duke, the defenses were able to gain a foothold. Uh, You know, it, it was the... The defenses were the constants in these games, and the offenses were, were the units that really struggled. Uh, so, you know, it seems like de- the defenses uh, really took center stage in the Elite Eight. Uh, and, 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 and the irony here, Alan, if there was an exception to this, it was a game involving Virginia. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, it really was a different uh, kind of trend in that uh, – you know, I you know I thought that Duke certainly had a few 80-point games, uh, in, you know, ready to unfurl in this tournament, and that did not happen. And uh, so that tells me that coaches had a had an idea of you know make sure that the right players uh, for Duke are shooting three-point shots instead of taking it to the rim. Make sure that we're packing the paint. Make sure that you know we're closing off driving lanes you know, to force players to, to become jump shot oriented. And, uh, you know, Duke had Trey Jones shoot really well from three against Virginia Tech, but that was really the exception that proved the rule. And so that, that you know, the, the things that we thought would be concerns for Duke, free throw shooting and three-point shooting, they definitely came back to bite the Blue Devils in the backside. Yeah, um and, you know, one thing that I noticed was, you know, kind of, you know, there are coaches, some coaches who have kind of reputations for, you know, letting their teams just kind of, kind of play loose, you know, and just, just kind of go for it. I mean, you know, you for example, you watch uh, Gonzaga this year and, you know, there's a lot of read and react to their offense, that type of thing. Uh, you know, North Carolina is another one, of course. They, they fast break so much. And, you know, the tournament, it, it's really kind of, uh, you know, it, it it can come down to being a coaching clinic, I think, and 
some of the guys who, for lack of a better word, are more micromanagers or more involved, a guy like Tom Izzo, a guy like Chris Beard maybe, uh, they seem to kind of shine through in these settings. You know, now, I mean, that's not saying that you can't win. I mean, it's, North Carolina has plenty of national championships to uh, back up the way Roy Williams has done things over time. But, you know, you get into these situations where possessions in particular are really important. You look at how... Gonzaga played against Texas Tech, um, you know, I really thought that just watching that, particularly how the first half went, Gonzaga really should have won that game. But, I mean, they gave away mindlessly so many balls. Yeah, with Gonzaga, I mean, you know, Brandon Clark lost a lot of a, a lot of balls, you know, committed some, some silly giveaways, you know, in terms of like a direct turnover to Texas Tech. But to me... The bigger problem was not not the live ball turnovers, you know, unfortunate though they were and harmful though they were. Uh, the the really the thing that really stuck out uh, with Gonzaga was Zach Norvell. You know, he hit like a 28, 30 foot three early in the second half, and I so often see this in March that when a, when someone splashes a really long shot, he falls in love with it. You know, it becomes fool's gold. He then thinks he can hit every 28 footer that he takes, you know, Norvell was shooting these long shots early or at least in the middle of the shot clock without working the ball around. And it's really a basic coaching principle, you know, move the ball, make the defense work, make the defense be accountable for every spot or every area on the court. And, you know, if the defense stuffs you all right, and the shot clock's winding down, okay, then you have to take a long one. But Norvell, on several occasions in that second half, when Gonzaga's offense ground to a halt, you know, he was shooting these early shots, and that means that Hachimura is not getting at least a touch. You, know, you, you at least want your best players to touch the ball. It doesn't mean they're going to be the ones shooting the ball, but you force the defense to react to them with the ball. That can create other opportunities for teammates on screens, cuts, various kinds of moves and deployments. And so Gonzaga was doing none of that on the many possessions that Zach Norvell shot a quick three. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a head-scratcher since that was a veteran group, all, you know, especially a veteran point guard, Josh Perkins. You know, the ball needs to go to him. He needs to route it through Hachimura or Brandon Clark, and that just didn't happen very often in the second half. Credit to Texas Tech for rattling Gonzaga and so clearly throwing the Zags off balance, but... Nor- Norvell's quick hoists, you know, those were self-inflicted errors, and I'm surprised that those errors never really got corrected as the second half moved along. Yeah, I'm certainly with you there. Um, you know, looking at another game, we, you know, you kind of touched on it earlier, but Virginia, um, Virginia Purdue was one of the best college basketball games, was best tournament games I've ever I've ever watched personally, at least just from the drama and the shot making and whatnot. But you know, for all the uh, you know kind of uh, you. Know, pyrotechnics you know around Carson Edwards I was really impressed by uh Virginia's guard play in that game not just Kyle Guy who was the scorer but uh you know Ty Jerome who was just an assassin out there and then the other guy who really deserves a lot of credit for uh how well the uh, who's played this weekend is Kihei Clark I thought he played uh, really really solid ball for them uh more so than he has all year in both those games well, and, you know, on that final play in regulation, obviously Mamadi Diakite hit the shot. But oh, no, that Clark passed, who made though. the play. 
But yeah, that what pass was, that? was un- that pass was unreal. One of the best passes I've honestly ever seen. If it's a softer pass, Diakite catches it and shoots too late. If it's if it's not an accurate pass, there's no way he's going to hit an accurate shot. And you know, I think nine out of ten college players, being where Clark was on the floor with like three seconds left, you know, near midcourt. Uh, would probably have tried to take a few dribbles and, and hoist a, a 40-foot, you know, off-balance shot. And it's not like – it's not as though we would have been hugely critical of that because the clock was running down. There's three seconds left and you're mm-hmm. in mid-court. That is, not, that is not an easy situation to process. Like, oh, I'm in this situation all the time. No, you're not. This is a once-in-a-lifetime situation. And so he had the clarity to think, pass first, Where's my teammate? And then to just actually execute that amazing one-handed whip pass, you know. So it's a it's a it's a freshman point guard knowing what to do, and having wisdom beyond his years. But that all that play from the back tap to Clark having the pass first mentality to Diakite knowing that he immediately had to get rid of it, otherwise it would have been late. So the back tap, Clark's pass, Diakite's immediate shot, that shows you that Virginia was drilled on that, and that goes right to Tony Bennett having his team ready for an endgame situation. Yeah, I mean, it was just just a remarkable, uh, you know, sequence of events there. And, um, you know, I also appreciate Kihei Clark getting uh, one of the nastiest backdoor covers uh, you'll ever see there with those two free throws with one second left in overtime to uh, put Virginia over the top. But, uh you know, looking, uh, you know, one of the other, the maybe the more, the one, the matchup I think that really is going to have most people talking was what went down in Washington, D.C. between Duke and uh, Michigan State. And, you know, uh, Coach K, for all of his success, I mean, uh, and it is, you know, he's a legend, you know. I mean, there's no way around it. Gosh, man, you know, the past couple of years, I, I just can't. I have not been particularly impressed with the uh, the work that he's done with these last two squads. It's true, and a thought just occurred to me. This is not something I've been you know saving for this, Alan. It really just did occur to me that John Wooden struggled immensely at the beginning of his career. You know, he came from the late forties through the very early 1960s before his first Final Four in 1962. You know, uh, for those who don't know, don't know uh, all that much about college basketball history, and specifically John Wooden, Pete Newell, who was coaching at Cal Berkeley in the 1950s, Pete Newell smoked John Wooden regularly. I mean, Pete, Pete Newell was John Wooden's daddy uh, in, in, on, the, on the West Coast. And so Wooden had to take his lumps for over a decade before he found a formula, and the cynics will obviously say before he found Sam Gilbert. Yeah. But nevertheless, nevertheless, John Wooden, you know, did become, you know, a legendary coach who who replicated success to an extraordinary degree. That was Coach K from 1986 through 2001. I mean, that that was Coach K's salad days, and so it's really kind of an inversion now with Coach K over the last 15 seasons, 2005 through 2019, making only two Final Fours, often with very, very high-end talent. So Coach K's second half of his career and John Wooden's first half of a career have featured dry spells, but it underscores for me not so much that Coach K 
is underachieving, though, you know, you do expect more than two Final Fours in 15 years at Duke. It's not the underachieving so much as great coaches can and do go through prolonged droughts. And, you know, that, that, that was put into focus, Alan, by the Purdue-Virginia game because you had Gene Cady looking on in the stands, Gene Cady and John Chaney and Lefty Grizzell, three people who come to mind as, you know, the best coaches never to have made the Final Four. And an interesting extra historical note there, when Cady made the Elite Eight for the last time in his 25-year career at Purdue, it was in the year 2000, and the man who beat him in the Elite Eight to deny Katie in his final Elite Eight game was Dick Bennett, the father of Tony Bennett, who was also there in the stands in Louisville. So, so Gene Katie and Matt Painter just can't get out of the shadows of that darn Bennett family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but uh, the, the interesting part to me is that, you know, last year I felt like Duke was such a bad defensive team. I mean, they, they couldn't you know coach k couldn't get him to play man so they were playing that two three zone which was so vulnerable to a team like uh kansas last year uh, that could shoot it this year the offense just the it was out it was never in sync and you know you compare that you know i, I mean i obviously they beat uh, virginia a couple times this year but virginia's guard play i mean they were able to kind of get everybody on the same page you know just about every possession felt like and Duke, there were just so many times when you just had no idea what they were trying to do. It's true, and you know the thought that occurs to me is, let's also look at Michigan State here. If you were to compare this Michigan State team to last year's Michigan State team, last year's Michigan State team had the better NBA lottery pick talent with Miles Bridges yeah. and Jaron Jackson. You know this this team is not nearly as talented as last year's, but it meshed. And that's really the thing about 18- and 19-year-olds playing college basketball in this pressure-packed spotlight. You, know, you don't know how rosters are or aren't going to come together. And when I think of Coach K national titles, you know, the 2010 team, my goodness, that 2010 Duke team yeah. had like, what, 20% of the talent on this year's team? But it won it all because yeah. because those guys played together. You know, Brian Zubek was a lumbering center, but he blended well with Shire and the and the other players on that team. So you know, the how a roster comes together uh, is is the great unknowable. It's the great variable, and it's why getting into discussions about pure talent or raw talent doesn't really work. It's how a coach puts pieces together. And so often we do see that the coaches, the great coaches of our time, they win their national titles not with their most talented teams, but with the rosters that work together. You know, Jim Beheim, that 2003 team was hardly his best team, but it, but it won. Lute Olson, that 1997 Arizona team, it, it, it actually did have talent, but it was kind of talent that was not fully realized. Those same players in 1997 who won it all became a number one seed and were the favorite to win the NCAA tournament in 1998 and got crushed by Rick Majerus. Defense. Uh, so, you know, we, we see this again and again and again, and both Michigan State and Duke this season embody that. Michigan State in a good way relative to last year, Duke in a bad way relative to the 2010 Duke team, which – you know, again, unlike this 2019 team 
And unlike that 2002 Duke team, which to me was the best Duke team ever assembled, that team lost in the Sweet 16 to Mike frickin' Davis and in Indiana. So it, and it's just mm-hmm. amazing how the most talent so often does not win. Uh, and I think, and, and interestingly enough, Alan, though, you know, if you're going to select the best coach in terms of riding elite teams to national titles, I think that's Roy Williams. Yeah. Uh, Roy Williams has the best track record of getting elite talent to the national championship victory stand. He did it in 2005, did it in 2017. Did it in 2017. North Carolina had the best team those three seasons and won it all. And so you know that that seems to be kind of the exception for most other coaches, most other teams. Um, it, it seems that their most talented teams are not the ones that bring home national championships. Well, let's go ahead and uh, talk about uh, the games that are coming up in the Final Four. Uh, you know, we've got uh, two what look like you know pretty tight matchups here. You know, looking at the uh, the spreads, uh, Vegas has already put them out here. You've got uh, Virginia favored by five and a half over Auburn, and uh, Texas Tech is a three-point underdog to Michigan State. In both games, the total is very low. It's in the 130s, um, low 130s, in fact. Um, I guess anything you just, you know, we'll start off with that uh, Auburn-Virginia game. Uh, anything really stand out to you? I mean, can, can Auburn keep up this shooting the way that they've been going, especially without a Kiki? Well, you know, I, I, I think the, uh, the big matchup, here, here are the big matchup problems on each side. So the big matchup problem for Virginia, as I see it, is Jared Harper. Jared Harper is going to be the quickest player on the court. I do not see Ty Jerome or Kihei Clark being able to stay in front of him reliably. Now, of course, you know, Virginia will probably devise a way, and Tony Bennett's good at this, of clogging the paint in ways that, if, you know, if, if Harper does drive, you know, he's going to run into a brick wall. I mean, that's obviously going to be Virginia's plan, but Harper might be too elusive uh, for any kind of straightforward plan uh, to work. So, you know, Harper's quickness really is, I, I think, if, you know, if I'm Tony Bennett, that's the thing that worries me the most. Now, on the other side, the matchup problem I see for Auburn, especially with Okiki out, is DeAndre Hunter. And I think this is this is the player who has to be, Virginia's best player on the court for Virginia to have the best chance of winning because Hunter has not really yet had a strong game. He did, it should be noted, score the go-ahead basket late in the final minute of overtime against Purdue. But in general, his shot hasn't been working. He's been hesitant. Uh, He has not put together a complete offensive game. But why I focus on him, it's not just Okiki being out. It's also the fact that, you know, with, with Okiki being out, Auburn's, of the big man that Auburn has, there's really no pure, natural, low-post score. You know, you have, you have bodies who can bang and play defense, uh, but you don't really have a significant offensive threat, whether it's Wiley or Spencer, anyone else that Auburn has in the low post. So what that means, Alan, is that when DeAndre Hunter plays defense, you know, assuming he's going to guard one of Auburn's forwards, one of, somebody in Auburn's front court, it's not going to be as demanding a defensive assignment uh, as, he, as he might have had uh, against Kentucky uh, with either uh, P.J. Washington or Reed Travis. So the fact that Hunter is not going to have as demanding a defensive assignment, at least not on a regular basis, that, that allows him to be the guy who needs to take over more 
at the offensive end because, you know, Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome, they are going to have their hands full with Jared Harper and Bryce Brown, the Auburn backcourt. They're going to be, the, the, you know, the, the, the main task for Jerome and Guy is going to be on, at the defensive end. So that means that Hunter needs to do more of the work at the offensive end, and I think he has a good matchup in which to do that. So Hunter's the matchup problem for Auburn, and Harper is the matchup problem for Virginia. And I see a very close game because, you know, Auburn played on even terms with Kentucky without Okiki. The defense is really locked in for Bruce Pearl. And we saw Virginia struggle with Oregon's length in that Sweet 16 game, and Auburn really has a lot of that same length. I don't think quite as much as the leaping ability of Oregon with Kenny Wooten. I don't think Auburn has as many skywalkers or skyscrapers, as Al McGuire used to say, uh, but, but there is still uh, plenty of length and plenty of energy that Auburn can throw at Virginia, so I, I do expect another defense-dominated game there. Yeah, I just think, though, that, uh, I, I mean, I've – it's rare to find a team that can control tempo the way that Virginia does. I mean, it, it, it's astonishing to me how good they are at it. Uh, you know, really year in and year out. And I do wonder if that's really going to frustrate Auburn because, you know, obviously they were able to get up and down with Carolina and, it, you know, they had their chances to do it with Kentucky today too. But Virginia is just so dead set on slowing the tempo down. And, uh, you know, that that can be a real, really, really fluster a team uh, like like Auburn that relies so much on transition. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the key to Virginia in terms of its ability to master tempo, to me, is Ty Jerome. And, and we've talked about this, that Ty Jerome has a very John Stockton-like feel for the game. Uh, and he, he can dominate a game without scoring, though, of course, he was scoring a lot against Purdue, but he doesn't have to be that kind of player, you know, especially if Kyle Guy's filling it up or if DeAndre Hunter's scoring, but uh, Jerome sees the floor and feels the game better than anyone else in that Auburn-Virginia game, and so if he plays under control, if he doesn't get rattled, you know, you get to the big stage and the enormity of the Final Four, it often turns based on one player having that horrible body-snatched game. I think back five years ago, Scotty Wilbekin, Florida's exceptional point guard on that Billy Donovan team that won 30 straight games uh, entering the Final Four. Uh, he just had a nightmare against Ryan Boatwright, and he got boat raced by Boatwright and UConn and just had a nightmare. So, you know, if uh, Jerome or someone else has a nightmare game, you know, that could be all Auburn needs. But, uh, you know, I, from watching the way Jerome plays, I do not expect him to have that bad game. And, that, and, and if, if Jerome, you know, is a steady hand, you know, I just don't see this game getting out of hand for Virginia. And that's part of why I do expect a very close game on Saturday. Right, right, right. Well, let's look over uh, other game here. We've got uh, Texas Tech and Michigan State. Again, Michigan State's a very small favorite at uh, three points. Um Man, you know, a lot of people seem to be gravitating towards uh, Tech as a potential national champion here after the way they handled uh, the Zags. Well, you know, I see, I think it, this, what makes this Final Four great, Alan, I don't see any upsets here. I mean, you know, Auburn was supposed to have been a huge underdog against Kentucky, a team with no chance. And Auburn just shrugged its shoulders and outplayed Kentucky. 
So you have that happening. You have the emotions of playing for Chuma Okiki. And I know we're talking about Texas Tech here. I'm going to get back to that. But uh, just Auburn is on such an emotional high, and Bruce Pearl is such a legitimately great coach. Say what else you want to about his ethics. So Auburn is going to be the lowest-seeded team at this Final Four. Auburn is entirely capable of winning two games. So as we shift back to Texas Tech, you know, Texas Tech, you know, unmade, it made Gonzaga unsettled. And Gonzaga is one of the elite offensive teams in the United States, better than Michigan State, I think, uh, with, with more reliable scores at more different areas of the floor. So if you can get Gonzaga off its game, you can certainly get Michigan State off its game. But what's what's going to be the, the, the problem for Texas Tech is Cassius Winston. And Cassius Winston has delivered the goods. He's been as good as he has needed to be. You know, in that last possession against Duke, uh, it wasn't Winston scoring, but the ball was routed through Winston at the right elbow, and he drew attention from, from the Duke defense uh, so that, you know, when he, when he uh, developed that offensive set, you had Duke flooding the paint, and that is what enabled Kenny Goins to pop out to the top of the key wide, wide open. So Winston's presence is a real headache for Texas Tech, and that, that's the nut that Texas Tech has to crack. Uh, I, I, you know, now, Texas Tech having that ability to thwart Gonzaga, you know, that demands a lot of respect, but Cassius Winston is going to be a very tough out uh, for the Red Raiders. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, looking at this, I mean, how do you see it playing out? Uh, you know, Virginia's uh, the the favorite here, but uh, like you mentioned, I mean, these teams all seem pretty close, especially with the way Auburn's playing right now. They do. I, I, I do think that we often see teams with either an injury or a limitation. They carry through that same weekend when the injury or the plot twist occurs and then they get to the following weekend and it's different you know it's not the same energy they just can't replicate that formula but you know, i i think this is a very even final four no national champion would surprise me uh i need to you know be on the record saying that but with all that having been said if you told me you know you have to pick one team in each of these semifinals i would have to lean toward virginia and I would lean toward Virginia because Virginia is much more likely to hit a reasonable amount of three-point shots compared to Kentucky. I think Virginia can cobble together enough offense uh, against Auburn. And I think that Auburn uh, has the length of Oregon, but not quite as much uh, the interior shot-blocking presence that, that Oregon did. So I think Virginia is going to have more avenues to score uh, than, than Auburn does. And on a larger level, and I've already indirectly alluded to this, I think that Ty Jerome for Virginia and Cassius Winston for Michigan State are going to exert enough control over the tempo and the kinds of shots their offenses are able to produce. And that's why Virginia and Michigan State should be, in my mind, the favorites, the teams that I would lean to. I don't think these are obvious calls by any stretch. You could make great arguments for Texas Tech and Auburn, but I would certainly lean to Virginia because Michigan State eliminated Virginia in both the 2014 and 2015 uh, NCAA tournaments and has been a thorn in Virginia's side. So 
if, if, if Michigan State played Virginia again, it would be really Virginia would be going up against the kryptonite team and the kryptonite coach that it just hasn't been able to figure out. So if you ask me right now, I would say Michigan State over Virginia on Monday, April 8th. Yeah, uh, just the way Michigan State has played, uh, really, you know, throughout the tournament, I'm, I could, I could definitely see it. Uh, man, that would be, that would be a, you know, just a fascinating matchup though to watch those two teams kind of grind and bang on each other. Um, but uh, I, I kind of like Virginia just because, uh, you know, I, I was actually really impressed with the way their front line general played. Outside of, you know, I mean, Hunter having a poor game, but. Uh, Diakite and I, I really thought that uh, also uh, Jack Salt uh, played really well against um, uh, Purdue the other night. Uh, you know, Michigan State can a lot of times can out tough teams and bang down low, and uh, that's one game game where I think that uh, you know they wouldn't have that edge. So I, I'm kind of leaning towards uh, Virginia here, but uh, like you mentioned, I, I really could see any any four of these teams winning. So it should set up for a pretty good Final Four. It is, and you know, so there's only really one blue blood team, and that's that being Michigan State. If Texas Tech beats Michigan State in that second semifinal, we are guaranteed a first-time national champion. And of course, with Virginia and Auburn, we're already guaranteed a team playing a school will play in its first national title game. You know, Virginia, unlike Texas Tech and Auburn, has made the Final Four before, but the two times that Virginia made it under Terry Holland. In the early 1980s, it lost its semifinals. So Virginia has not played in a national title game. We will get at least one of those two schools in Virginia-Auburn playing in its first national title game. So I love this new blood. For the second time in three years, Alan, at the Final Four, we have two teams making their first Final Four. In 2017, it was South Carolina and Gonzaga. And you also had from that Final Four, Oregon, having made its first Final Four since the first one in 1939. Uh, so here you have Virginia having made its first Final Four since 1984. And then you just have the one blue blood. Uh, North Carolina was that team in 2017, and Michigan State is that team in 2019. So I, I really love I, – I love fresh Final Fours. Uh, you know, we, I, I know that a lot of people love the blue bloods, uh, but I, I love seeing first teams – uh, getting there, you know, for the first time, it's extra special, it's extra cherished, and it really sets the stage in future seasons, Alan, for more teams, you know, being able to build their programs to the point that they can compete for national championships. I think that in college basketball, that's very much a feature and not a bug. It's, it's good to have that. I think that the history of the NCAA tournament, going from 16 to 25 teams, and then to 32 and 40, and then 64, now 68. You know, the whole point of expanding the tournament is to give more schools a chance. And when you, and when, so when people see Auburn and Texas Tech and Virginia being there, that's going to give them hope wherever they are across the country that they can be in that position in a few years' time. It's exciting. Well, Matt, uh, tell everybody where they can find uh, all your work. So I'm at cbbtoday.com, College Basketball Today. That site is published by Joseph Nardone, N-A-R-D-O-N-E, Joseph Nardone on Twitter. Uh, I'm going to have a, a piece on Monday uh, about the long droughts that, that great college coaches go through. Uh, that's a big part of the conversation with Coach K's uh, 
struggles. So I'm going to have that and a lot more on the 2005-2019 the Elite Eight comparison, all at cbbtoday.com. Well, Matt, um, as always, it's been so much fun talking college hoops with you uh, these past couple weeks for the tournament. Uh, let's do it again next year. Absolutely, Alan. It's always a joy, and we really did ring out March in style. Uh, could not have asked for a better March 31st. Yeah, it really was a fantastic uh, couple days of basketball. So uh, looking forward to the Final Four. Thanks again to our guest, Matt Zemick. Make sure to follow everything that they're doing over there at cbbtoday.com. And uh, thanks to you all for joining us, too. For the Blayton Homers and Podcast, I'm Alan Kenny. Take it easy.